whilst I was gone, I was I was thinking about something that uh, is going to come up in next week's Pasha Kisiso about the Egel, which brought me along a meandering road. And that is the traumas that we suffer. To what extent do we transmit them to our children? And I'll come back to that right at the end with some recent studies. And so the question that I would have today is, why do Moshe's children and grandchildren play such a small role in the Torah? There's barely mention of them. You would have thought that the children of Moshe, just like the children of our own, have utmost importance in the narrative, carry the torch, you know, so to speak. But it's our own that takes center stage on most occasions. For instance, uh, in Bamidbar 3, Ve'ele told us Aaron u Moshe. It says, and here are the generations of Aaron and Moshe, Beyom Diber Adonai et Moshe Bahar Sinai. So it's a recap in chapter 3 of Numbers of the generations of Aaron and Moshe. And the very next verse, it says, Ele Shmos b'nei Aaron habachor, nodav anavihu, elaza itamar. What happened to Moshe? There's no mention of Moshe's children in that posuk. And so what I'd like to try to understand is, why is it that Moshe's children don't get any mention? The absence of the children. Shadal, Reb Shmuel David Lutzato says, that the Torah was deliberately making brief mention of Moshe's children uh, to show that they neither sought nor deserved the grandeur that was assigned to the Aaronic children that were the priesthood. Okay. Others, including the Ramban and especially the Nitziv, unmask the question by saying that the sons of Aaron were the exclusive intellectual heirs to Moshe. So the Torah didn't leave out his toldos at all. They just they sidestepped the problem. So let's dive into this issue. Chassam Soifer addresses this issue. Why aren't Moshe's children mentioned? And he gives two uh, different reasons. One, that Yoshua became the leader specifically because Shesidur Hafsasalim Bebeta Medrash. Because Yoshua arranged the chairs in the Beit Midrash. He was a real child of Moshe. He was a disciple. He swept the floor like... Uh, I once told you about Remendel of Rimenov, who had a son who was a big Talmud Chacham and should have taken over. And on his deathbed, he points to Herschelah, the sweeper of the base Medrash, and he points to him. He will be the next Rebbe, Reb Herschelah Rimenov, right? Yoshua will be it. He's been with me. He's been through everything with me. That's one reason the Chassam Sofer says. The other ones is based on a Medrash in Rashi, in Pasha's Yisra, that Moshe Rabbeinu's sons were unworthy because he neglected them whilst caring for Am Yisrael. Now we're going to dive. What does that mean? We're saying, okay, Moshe, you know, your, your children, we don't mention them because... Yoshua is your real son, your intellectual son, your heir, the next Rebbe. Or you were too busy with the Tzorchei Tzibor. We know many instances in our generation of Gedolim whose children go off the derech. I mean, and there's a whole website, you know, failedmessiah.com, childrenofgedolim.org. 
these are these are children who were neglected by the parents. Okay, I want to even stretch it a little bit darker. To what extent do we transmit the traumas that we had? And was there a trauma in Moshe's childhood that he then transmitted? So we've got to then go to the backstory because there's nothing in the Torah of And for all the grit and grandeur of the character of Moshe as a character, the Torah deigns to tell us nothing about Moshe offstage. We have to dig into the Medrash to catch a glimpse of him as a child of privilege growing up in Pharaoh's court. Only the bare facts of his own domestic life are shared with us. For instance, when running away from Paro, he marries Zipporah, the daughter of a Midianite priest who bears him two sons, Gershom and Eliezer. And when it comes to go back to Mitzrayim, remember, he has forgotten or neglected or he hasn't circumcised them. It's Zipporah that has to take a flint and do it to her sons, not their sons. Very careful reading. It's a striking fact that we never hear of Moshe's sons again, unlike the sons of Aaron, who inherit the priesthood. The sons of Moshe do not figure as the natural heirs to the office of their father. And we're not given a clue as to why. We, little, we know as little about the fate of his sons as we do about his grave location. Part of the reason of this Self-denial of the Torah may be the unworthiness of Gershon and Eliezer to succeed their father. And that points us to a tragic pattern not uncommon in the household of biblical leaders. And so I want to share with you and go fast forward to a pasuk in Shoftim, if I may be so bold. And this story in Shoftim has to do with the Danites, and a tantalizing detail points to a tragic pattern. And what's going on here? This is the Book of Judges, records a campaign by the tribe of Dan, and they go and conquer the peaceful Phoenician town of Laish in the upper Galilee and renamed it Dan. And what happened? They installed a cult with a sculptured image to be run by one, and let's look at the posuk, Yonatan ben Gershon. Ben Menashe, who Ubonov Koyanim Dani. So they 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 went out and they basically hired this uh, Levite and his descendants to become the priests in this cult. Can you see that the nun is hanging? It's floating. And that's in the Torah. And the rabbis are commenting on that because what happens if you take out the nun? What do you have? Moshe. Oh my gosh. So in our text, the nun is elevated as if it doesn't belong, suggesting an older reading that the Masechet Sofrim didn't want to ignore, but on the other hand, couldn't tolerate. And that is the acknowledging that the grandson of Moshe presided over a sanctuary that violated the faith of his grandfather. So out of respect for Moshe, they tried to obscure the identity by slightly inserting a suspended nun a letter that hangs there with all the ambivalence of a child of a prominent parent. <laughs> I, this is an outrageous comment. And this was a man by the name of Mika from Har Ephraim in that chapter before, 
who went out to look for this levy. And this levy turns out coming from the territory of Yehuda, wandering around, finding a place, and Mika recruits him to be a priest and a father in his home. And now let's look at this Rashi to the Gemara in Sanhedrin. And this Rashi goes back to the idea that back in Egypt, there was a quota of bricks that were required. Nit What's going on? That children, whether they were born during hard labor or their fathers didn't have enough bricks count, there was a count every day, they had to put the child into the building in place of a brick. This is an outrageous medrash, Agadita, that somehow children, babies born, were put into the mortar to make up the horrific quota of bricks. And not only that, Hotzi Echad Mehem. So Moshe, now we have an understanding when he says, what are you doing to this people? And he gets a lot of criticism by the commentators for criticizing God. But in this Medrash, he is justified because what does he do? He says, look what you're doing. They're putting children instead of bricks. And God says to him something very dark. They are wiping out the thorns because it is revealed before me that if these children live, they would be completely wicked. Oh my gosh. We're doing some ethnic cleansing before we leave Egypt. Do you believe what you're reading? And God is going along with it. You know, we have to put the bad guys out. So we're going to put them in the bricks and leave them behind in Egypt. What a horrific idea. We are ethnically cleansing the wicked people so that we can have an ethnically righteous Am Yisrael that goes out of Egypt. And, and God then says to Moshe, and if you want, if you want, prove me wrong. You can take out one of those bricks. Mika is this child who then later in Shoftim becomes this renegade that sets up Pesel Mika with this Levite who is the grandson of Moshe who's going to be his officiating priest. That's the Mika that was saved, proving God was right. You see, take one and I'll prove to you that he's going to be wicked and he's going to actually turn your own grandson. It is such a dark medrash. Notice that it is God and Moshe having this back and forth. Now, there is a Sefer HaYosha, another medrash, a medieval text. Listen to what he says. As the command to destroy all the male children had been withdrawn the day Moshe was cast into the Nile, the people multiplied, and now the fears of the Egyptians were aroused. So the king published a new decree with the object of impeding the increase. So this is a kind of racial profiling in which we have to single out the Jews and we have to keep them from multiplying. They're getting too many. Sound familiar in modern day? He required the Egyptian taskmasters to impose a, ta a tally 
of bricks on every man. And if at evening the tally of bricks was not made up, then in place of the deficient bricks, even only one brick was short, they were to take the children of those who had not made up their tally and to build them into the wall of the bricks. So one misery upon another misery was piled up. It's interesting that we don't have this in the Haggadah because we do have Vatal Tsa'akasam, their cries went up to God. And what's really interesting is the Yalkut Shimoni that tells us uh, two, I want to bring to you two different arguments that actually change God's mind. This is the Yalkut, Torah 243. And now when they're coming out of Egypt and they're about to be drowned in the sea, the supernal prince of Egypt goes up to the throne of glory and starts giving him a hard time. Why are you giving us such a hard time? You already killed us in, in the 10 plagues. And you, why don't you judge between us and between Am Yisrael? I mean, you know, we did exactly what you said. You told them they would have to go to Mitzrayim. You never said you were going to kill the Egyptians. And he goes on and on. Come on, be a righteous judge. Don't do another genocide upon a genocide. Why do we have to drown in the river, in the sea? In Ritzonach Toshies Yisrael, you go and save Am Yisrael. Velota Abed is Mitzrayim. Don't destroy the Egyptians. Amar Yeshua Belevi Kivan Shera Michael Shesare Ha'Umas Melamdem Sanegoria. Now Rabbi Yeshua Belevi says, when Michael, one of the angels, hears that God is listening to the defense witnesses on Mitzrayim, the defense attorneys. Ramaz la Gavriel, he winked, nudge, nudge, wink, wink to Gavriel. Vatas la Mitzrayim, and he flew down to Mitzrayim. Tisa Achas in one Concord jet. Vashomat Levana in Tisa Vatinok Echot. And he now takes out from the pyramid a brick with a baby enclosed in the brick. Masha Shaku Kapinyan, that was sunk into the building. Now he brings it to HaKadosh Baruch He brings the brick with the child in it. Is this what you call building pyramids? Building pyramids is one thing with bricks. Using a child as part of the building process, that's what you call Binyan? He's coming to refute the defense attorneys for the Sarshal Mitzrayim. Given Sheros or Midas Adin, Omro Osso Din Lebenecho be Mitzrayim, Sherubin Chayev, Miyad Tov Mitzrayim. And that triggered the Midas Adin into action, and so the Mitzrayim were destroyed. So the Midas Adin is moved to destroy the Egyptians in the sea because of that brick, because of that little child, Micha, in that brick. Now, in a different medrash, it doesn't trigger him to drown them in the sea. It actually triggers him for something else. Rabbi Akiva Omer, Sinclatori, very simple, that's a, a Latin uh, loan word. Sinclatori parahoyu mechankin in Israel bekiros abayis. They would bury 
strangle the children in the walls of the house, between the bricks. And therefore, they, they cried from the walls, meaning the screams of the babies in the walls. So when it says that God heard their na'akatam, there are two expressions. One is tsa'akasam, that's B'nai Israel. The na'akatam, Soloveitchik has a whole difference between the two. Na'akatam is the shrieks of the children in the bricks. They are still alive. And, and that's what's going on. The Pirkei Durabeleza continues. The straw of the wilderness pierced their heels and the blood was mingled with the mortar and Rachel, the granddaughter of Shuthalach, with her husband was treading the mortar and the child was born there and became entangled in the brick mold. Her cry ascended before the throne of glory. And now the same angel Michael descends, different tradition, same theme, and brings the brick of mold with the clay, brings it up before the throne of glory. And that night the Holy One, blessed be, descends. And now instead of drowning them, this Medrash says, smites the firstborn of Egypt. So it is Marcus Bechoros, the final coup de grace, the ninth plague of, of killing the firstborn, that is triggered by God's mercy when he sees the cry of the baby born in the bricks. Okay, I want to now go to next week's parasha and join with me, please, in understanding this very dark Rashi, which now will make sense. And the Rashi is that they built an Egel Masecha, they built a golden calf. And Rashi says, Egel Masecha, given Shlicha Laur Bakur, once Aaron cast the gold he had collected from all Porku Nizmea Zahav, from the crucible, threw it into the fire. Ba'u Makashve Erevrav, the sorcerers of the great conglomeration of non-Jews, the Erevrav. We once spoke about this a year ago. We called it the Riffraff podcast known as the riffraff. This riffraff, they knew about sorcery. They knew about sorcery. By the way, I want to dedicate this uh, podcast to the Aliyah's neshama of Rivka Basdovich. She should have a, a neshama, should have an Aliyah uh, for all her family and for us. And so they threw in their sorcery, the Yesh Omrim. And now look at what he says, the Yesh Omrim. Who are the Yesh Omrim? He doesn't tell us where he gets that. He quotes the Tanhuma. Mika Hoyosham. This little boychikal that was saved from the brick by Moshe intercessing with God and God saying, hey, you know, they're all going to be wicked, this Erevra. I'm, I'm doing ethnic cleansing over here. Okay, you want to prove me wrong? Here, take this brick and we'll see what happens to him. And Mika is with them. What does he do? who was brought out of the foundations of the pyramid, where he was nearly crushed. And what's going on? He had in his hand, shame v'tas. He had a plate of some plate upon which was named Aleshore. Ale Shore? What's that about? Well, we have to go back to our last podcast on the bones of Joseph. 
And if you remember, Moshe couldn't find the bones of Joseph until he found this old hag, Sarah ban Osh who had given him this plate upon which it says, Ale shore, rise up, O shore, O ox. Because that's a pun on Jacob's blessing of Joseph. It's a play on the words here. When Jacob blessed his sons before dying, he included in his blessing to Joseph the phrase Ale Shur, which means in order to gaze, sure, to gaze with Rashi. In Moshe's blessing to the tribes before his passing, he refers to Joseph as Bechor Shor, a firstborn Shor, an ox. That's in Deuteronomy 33. So at the time of the Exodus, Moshe saw fit to fulfill the ancient pledge that Joseph's brothers had made regarding taking his bones to Eretz Yisrael. Hashbeah Hishbeah, please take my Atzmas Yosef. But Joseph's remains had not been buried in an easily accessible grave. They'd been placed in the Nile River in a metal casket, as we said. And so Moshe wrote the divine name and the words, Ale Shor, Ale Shor, rise you ox on a plate and cast it into the Nile. This formula was a play on Jacob's blessing to Joseph, but in place of Jacob's Ale, a poetic form of Al, the Moshe wrote Ale, which means arise. Not look, Ale Shor, see, but Ale, it was a pun. In the first person masculine singular, Kal, imperative, arise, arise ox. Thus, Ale Shor means arise, O ox, by means of the divine and his friend, the coffin floated to the top of the water, and Moshe was able to take his remains out of Egypt. My cousin Sinclair asked me on that podcast, then why doesn't he take his whole body if they embalmed him? We never answered that question, and I didn't have an answer to him until three o'clock in the morning when I was learning the Zoya to the Pasha. And it says Moshe's body and his whole body was taken out. But only Joseph's bones were taken out because Joseph felt that he would be taken to Eretz Yisrael. And with all the tumor that he had experienced in Mitzrayim, he only wanted the bones taken in out of deference to Eretz Yisrael because of what he'd experienced in the Ervas It's a very, very profound Zoya as to why only the bones of Joseph, but the body of Moshe, because Moshe never went to Eretz Yisrael. He died in the Midbar, so he didn't mind the body. Coming back to Ali Shaw, whilst he was involved in removing Joseph's coffin, Mika retrieved the plate. Mika retrieved the plate that said Ali Shaw. And there is this crazy, crazy medrash that says, and I only found this because Lieberman in Eretz Israel had found Jews who had come out of Yemen and made Aliyah, and he published Midrashe Teiman in 1950. 40, I believe. And in one of those Midrashim, it says the following, when the children of Israel passed through the sea, Mika took the pestle, a pestle with him, and he beheld the celestial chariot, because God revealed himself as an Ishmael Chama, and took the dust that is under one of the four carriers of that chariot. Remember, there was an eagle and there was an ox, and there was a nesher, and there was the face of a man. One of them was an ox, an agel. And he took the dust that was under the ox and put it away for the right time. 
When was the right time? Look right here in Rashi. He was tasked, Shekosabo Moshe, Aleshor, Aleshor. Lahalos Aaron Shel Yosef Mitoch Nilos. He took that plate. He had stolen that plate while Moshe was busy, busy with the coffin. He throws it into the fire that they had built. They were dancing around the fire, the Yotzaha Egel, and out comes, out comes the Egel. It is just a dazzling, dazzling drush. And it is, makes us come full circle. That is, that the Yonatan ben Gershon, the son of Menashe in Judges, or Moshe, is really the grandson of Moshe. That is, this Levi, that Mika, who survives into the Judges, and who now takes that Pesel Micha that he went through the Red Sea with, and establishes it in the city of Laish in Dan, in contradistinction, in opposition to Shiloh, which is the Aaronic priesthood in Shiloh, he sets up in Laish in Dan, and he recruits Levi ben... Who is the Levi? The Levi is Yonatan ben Gershon ben Moshe, the grandson of Moshe. It is just a stunning idea which brings us back to what on earth is going on here. What is going on? It's not just that the grandchild of Moshe becomes subservient to that child, that Mika, that little boy stuck as a baby in the bricks. That Moshe saves out of his Gemilas Chesed and says to God, what is going on here? And God says, just watch what will happen to that kid. And that kid turns out to set up an alternative Avodah Zorah in Laish, opposite Shiloh, in contradistinction to the whole idea of the Aaronic priesthood. Let's dig deeper into the psychodynamics of this. And I want to share with you some recent literature about association with parent PTSD and child PTSD, and also very good study, the impact and long-term effects of childhood trauma. And I see this in my practice daily. I have three generations of patients now, I'm that old. And the transmission of PTSD, trauma occurring to the parent that is somehow transmitted to the child, and we're not even talking about what we discussed before about epigenetics, we're just talking about the fact that there's a high incidence of cognitive dissonance occurring in children to parents with PTSD. Many studies. And I want to suggest that Moshe Rabbeinu's childhood was not something that we can say is not fraught. He grew up in the household of Pharaoh. And as you know, we've talked about this, that in the house of Pharaoh, he had a traumatic incident when the Khartoumim of Pharaoh said that this boy is going to want to grab your throne, and they put him through this horrific trial where he was forced to choose between the golden crown and the burning coals, and the angel Gabriel pushed him, and now he picks up this burning coal and puts it to his mouth, which explains why he's kavad peva, kavad lashon. This traumatic incident is just, for me, emblematic of the traumatic childhood of a child that has no real identity of whether his mother is the wetness and Batya Basparo is the real mother who raised him as a child, there's this dual identity of motherhood. And he then becomes a father that is absent to his two sons. He is continuing the trauma of his own childhood. And then that gets continued into the absent father and the children 
who have no career of their own, who actually are not even mentioned. And I want to use that as an understanding of the prison cell in Mauthausen. And the German reads, wenn es einen Gott, if there is a Gott, gibt muss er mich, you'll have to beg, um Verzeihung bitten, you'll have to beg my forgiveness. Religious victims of the Holocaust were confronted with the ultimate test of faith. And the majority of these victims, who were European Jews, had to come to this crisis of faith, which then got transmitted to their children. We now have statistics on the PTSD of these survivors and their inability to continue their religious faith following the Holocaust. And so I come back to my original meditation. To what extent do we transmit to our children the traumas of our past and our parents' past? To what extent? We become I became a great father after it was too late. And to what extent, you know, are we responsible or culpable? And I think that the Torah is teaching us an amazing lesson. Moshe Rabbeinu isn't just our teacher in terms of teaching us Torah. He's a walking, living Torah. And therefore we have to learn from his own biography, the spaces between the text the unconscious part of the text, the midrashic deep shot in the text, that in many ways his own biography and his own life is a greater teaching than what he professed, the Torah on Har Sinai, and the darkness of these narratives that Chazal are not afraid to give us, but we have to dig them out, that connects Pesel Micha and Micha, the child he saved, the child he saved that he never had because he was an absent father. That child who was going to then approach his grandson, the Levite, Ben Gershon, Ben Moshe, who will then succumb to his seduction and become the false priest of Moshe. Moshe's priesthood will be in Pesel Micha in Dan, not in the Aaronic priesthood of his brother in Shiloh. This conflict that occurs is the dark side of our genetics. And I think that he is teaching us something very profound here. He's teaching us that uh, trauma gets transmitted. That is the deepest inherent legacy of Mitzrayim, of Galut, of the Galut of the Neshama, of the Galut of us as we live today in a post-Holocaust world. That the trauma that we sustain through our Galut, through our humanity, that we keep passing on to children, is something that we have to bring to consciousness. That in fact, Shiloh is just the other side of Laish. They're with 40 miles from each other. And one is an Aaronic priesthood and one is a Moshe priesthood. And one turns out history to be David Melech HaMashiach and the other one is Pesel Micha, which is Dist. But at the same time, there it is in the Tanakh, those two opposites one the dark side of the other, both relating to two brothers, Moshe and Aaron, Moshe's absent children that are ignominy and Aaron's children that get the pride of the priesthood by God. And yet here we are as children of both of them and we have to inhabit both of them and we have to integrate both of them because there is no light without darkness as the Zoya tells us. And I think that the integration on a cultural level and on a personal level and on a spiritual level is critical to end the Galut, to understand where the trauma is and what we have done and to admit it and to validate it and to 
make amends for it. I hope you understand where I'm going with this. It's a very dark reading of next week's Pasha, but Rashi opens us to it, and he's not afraid to tell us that it's his Pesel Mika in which the emergence of this Egel comes out, connecting us to the bones of Joseph in a very dark way, and to the father-in-law Jethro and the absent son-in-law. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.